0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 491. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. So, this week's interview is with Ruth Ferenga. Ruth's a facilitator, executive coach, speaker, and author. She's founder of Conscious Leaders, a consultancy helping ambitious leaders in technology build a calm, collaborative and productive workplace. In 2019, Ruth started the Conscious Leaders podcast on which she showcases great people leaders, CEOs and founders who really step up for their employees. Her podcast interviews helped inform her new book, Next Level Leadership from Rethink Press. In this conversation with Ruth, we discuss her new book and podcast, What does it mean to be a conscious leader? How unconscious leaders can become conscious, showing emotions at work, with plenty of great tips and insights on how to become a better leader. You'll find all the show notes on MinterDial.com. Please consider the drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Ruth Ferenga, how lovely to have you on my show. Um, We met thanks to my friend Zoltan Vass. And we were talking about the future of work. And you let up that you were working on a book, it is now out. Next Level Leadership, Nine Lessons from Conscious Leaders. You're a coach, a consultant, and also a podcast host. So fellow, fellow podcast hosting and author. In your own words, how would you like to describe yourself, Ruth? Oh, good question.
1: My clients told me it was about creating a calm, the work was about creating a calm, collaborative and productive workplace, which I thought are nice words. Um, I usually say something like facilitator and executive coach. I think facilitators are a nice word because it is really what I do. Like, yes, there's content in what I do, but really it's about holding the space for others to do the work between themselves and do their right thinking, do their best thinking
0: so conscious leadership um you write about it uh about actually what does it mean conscious leadership i mean at the end of the day uh you also say later on that a lot of the things we do are unconscious so how would you like to articulate or for us conscious leadership
1: yeah i think conscious leadership is people that intentionally step up for others in the way that they run their business or their team. So according to how I define it in the book the work I do, it's those that are running commercially successful businesses. So they're a CEO or a founder or they're a senior partner within a corporate. Um, but they're also very active and proactive in the way that they support their people. And they do that in quite radical, innovative ways, usually, because they prioritize the happiness and fulfillment of their staff alongside the commercial success of what they're doing.
0: So start on the inside with your employees as a, a way to be profitable. Yeah,
1: I mean, I always say that this work is about three layers. So it's about self interrelation and wider culture. So self, how we manage ourselves, our habits, our reactivity, this type of thing. Then beyond that, how we interrelate how we listen to each other, how we coach each other so that we can get the best thinking out of one another and beyond that, the wider culture. Like, how do we want it to feel like around here? How do we create a space that's going to be fun or productive or whatever it is, the words that we want from our work, how do we intentionally make that happen and not just expect it to work out somehow? So those are the really important like, kind of phases, I think, that leaders need to work through.
0: At one point in in your book, Ruth, Next Level Leadership, you you quote a professor, Paul Dolan, to name him. And you, he, he said, the vast majority of our thinking is driven by our unconscious and the stories we've been telling ourselves. So it really is a theme I wanted to explore, which is how does an unconscious leader become conscious? I mean, at some level, I'm not even conscious of my unconsciousness. You talk about sort of unconscious competence and so on.
1: Mm. how does an unconscious leader become conscious well I think what we're talking about here is awareness and maybe if I draw from my own experience so previously I would have said if you take me back to 12 13 years I think I was quite reactive quite stressed I was a kind person still but I, I I I was like it's someone who would have like Like minor anger issues, I would say, and a lot of stress in my life. And I wasn't really aware that I was behaving that way. And through a process of my own anxiety, depression, and coming out of that a number of times through a lot of personal and professional development, coaching, my own business, all that mindfulness training, I have slowly become more and more conscious and aware of how I behave and my impact on others. So I think it's it's bringing to the surface things that are maybe maybe less appealing about our personality and making them bringing them into our awareness so that we can work on them.
0: Yeah, I, I personally have had moments where uh, typically it's my wife who says, you know, who has the courage to say, "Hey, Minter, uh, you're not acting nicely." And and it's at those moments I'm like, oh I didn't I didn't feel it, I didn't see it coming, I wasn't aware. And it, it's sort of like, how do you know about something when you don't know it existed in the first place? So it's yeah. it's about finding this ability to crack through our masks, our ignorance about ourselves, and and making people. Be comfortable or at least aware of their imperfections. How, yeah. how how does one get them to do that? I mean, as a coach, what are the things that trigger the aha moment?
1: Yeah. And I, just to reflect as well, that I still think I'm working on this. Like I always say to clients, people I work with, like, I'm not the finished product.
2: <laughs>
0: it's a <laughs> I'm journey.
1: Still, yeah, exactly. It's a journey. Like, we want to, I'm still working on my own practices every day to help me with this and I will fall back at times and other times I'll be doing better. In terms of how people go on this journey, I think it can be complex, not necessarily in a difficult way, but it's it's broad. For me, it's been things like mindfulness training. So I first discovered mindfulness when I lived in Oxford about 12 years ago and I was highly anxious, stressed. And I was quite I'm quite a science based person. So when I heard about mindfulness, i would be like, well, oh, it's a bit fluffy. But then I heard that Oxford University does a lot of research and they have a whole department for mindfulness. And so I was like, hmm, OK, if it's good enough for Oxford University, maybe it's good enough for me. <laughs> maybe I can open my mind to this. So I started on what was an eight week mindfulness based cognitive therapy course. Now, a lot of people advocate mindfulness, others say, oh, it's rubbish, doesn't work for me. and I think what people need to know is that if you follow an evidence-based approach, like an eight-week course, an eight-week mindfulness-based cognitive therapy course, or a program that just involves structured practice over a long time, then you will see change. There are very few people who do who de- dedicate some stuff to med- meditation and mindful practices and don't see change. So there's the, the mindfulness stuff, which we can go into further if you like, because I've been working on it a long time. Um, And then there's my own coaching experience. So when I went to see my first coach, I think she helped me really wake up to my own values and why I was really struggling in life and why I'd had such a stressful experience in my last employer and really butted up against a really difficult leader there and how I needed to adapt, kind of meet my values more fully. Um and beyond that, I've had I've had like four coaches. So I um I dip in and out of coaching for, for extensive periods. And I think it's a really good way for me personally as a coach for others as well to better reflect on how I'm acting and check myself and think, hmm, is this how I want to be behaving in this moment? Is this where I'm intending to be? I'm purposeful about, or am I kind of deviating and following habits and behaviors maybe from my childhood or the playground? Like what's going on here and can I can I wake up to what I might be unintentionally
0: doing? What's interesting, Ruth, is that in the idea, or the proposition of changing others, you expressed it through yourself and as a story that helps people to latch into it. I'm guessing so many people are listening to this and, and are pretty uh, unaware of these moments. But the reality is, that for sure, I'm a work in progress. I wrote a book on empathy. And am I empathic all the time? No. And by the way, I don't think you should be empathic all the time, because otherwise, you may end up doing nothing. But um, well, you know, it's a problem of the great empaths. But there there are times when I'm, I certainly feel like I'm, I'm off base. the The challenge is all the more pressing in larger organizations where I might be a leader but I'm not the CEO. Uh, I mean, I, when I was working at L'Oreal, I, I ran large teams I had the big title, but I still had um, a layer or two to the CEO. And so I couldn't be responsible for the entire corporate culture. In a lot of the situations or the examples you give, there I had the feeling and I couldn't, I didn't sort of fact check all this, but that a lot of the companies were smaller companies that had um, even employee ownership or private ownership where your governance options are wider where i'm in charge of the whole thing what what about the notion of mid-level management and mid-level conscious leadership is there a possibility for that and 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 if if it's the boss who's not a conscious leader What kind of openings are there for making, to get the leeway? Let's say you have access to the CEO to get them on board as well.
1: Mm, What a really good question. I intentionally interview people who have made waves in their company. So often they are, there, there is a range. There is small, medium and corporate, including PwC, for example, a partner there. And the employee ownership company you mentioned are a corporate there, Riverford, there are a thousand people. But you do see a lot of small to medium-sized business founders and CEOs there. And I think to say, just briefly, I'd say that this work needs to start at the top or as near to the top as as humanly possible. Because if you are a middle manager and you're reading all this great stuff and you're unable to influence the top, all this book is going to do is make you realise that maybe you should leave. <laughs> Or maybe you should try a bit before you leave um, because you're wanting to be in a different environment. And I I actually wrote, I was writing a blog today on like three characteristics of conscious leaders. I pull out the first three. And I actually said at the end that I'd really like you to share this with someone who you don't think would usually read something like this. Because I think what I'm most interested in doing this work is reaching the tough people. Who don't do personal and professional development and actually steamroller a lot of people and cause a lot of destruction in their leadership because they are unconscious, like we were talking about before, and unaware of what they're doing. And they want the commercial, success over anything else. And what they haven't realized is that actually this being nice to people, supportive, purposeful, all this stuff is going to help with that. So I'm really keen that people would share something. Maybe it's not the whole book, maybe it is, maybe it's a blog like this. Something is a nugget that is about commercial success alongside this really stepping up for people in new and different ways. Because I think you make a really good point. If you are middle management and you're not seeing that at the top, that's challenging. Now you can have your own impact in your team, you know, just from we talk about loads of things in the book, including great listening, great intention, managing yourself in a way that's supportive to them. And that will have a ripple effect on. The layers of management or the one team you support however senior you are and you have you know any person can decide if that is something that they are prepared to tolerate if they're not seeing good stuff come from the top and g- great people can do great grassroots stuff as well there's no denying that but it is challenging and i i would like to help anyone that is is interested in doing that because i think that does that is where this real work needs to happen it needs to help I'm going to say tough guys it's not always guys but often it is it's traditional masculinity here so how do we help those people be open to this work i think it's a really good question for myself
0: i did a little i would say informal audit of your your podcast where you have maybe 30 or 35 um episodes and it seems that compared to what I would characterize as the generalization that most leaders CEOs are still male, you have a, a larger proportion of female leaders CEOs. And I can't help but think that the the as one of your points in 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 your book is bringing your whole self to work. I I have. Just you know, anecdotally, without any scientific research, just observed that more often than not, uh, a female leader will more often bring her whole self to work, including the ability to cry, be vulnerable, and 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 listen. Because there's uh, also research that shows that women tend to index higher in empathy than males, men, and so. Yeah, there's this. I have this feeling that it's a there's a feminine quality to this ability. I would like to have you react to that.
1: There's a feminine quality to this ability. Um, yeah, I mean, I think to be honest, and I'm not giving them excuses, but I think it is tough out there for guys in some ways. Because you talked about like crying, for example, like it's tough for a lot of guys to cry. Full stop. Never mind yeah. crying at home. Work at place. home, yeah. with your spouse, and with your children. Leader. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think there is. We have a really interesting challenge at the moment in which we expect men to open up and be vulnerable and maybe, you know, cry and all this, or like be human and relate and listen all this stuff, but they weren't brought up like that, you know. So. And we're totally generalizing. There's a whole bunch of Gen Z people coming up who who can cry and are really open-hearted and and all this. But it's, I think it's an interesting challenge that we we also still expect men to be quite tough. And, you know, in the large amount of scenarios, expect men to be the main breadwinner, not always. But this is an interesting challenge. So we're saying to men, why aren't you taking the paternity leave? And why aren't you like really opening up about all this stuff? But we still need to, to earn and And there is an interesting balance there that I think is not easy for quite some proportion of of men right now.
2: My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, Personal details about both the books and the authors' lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.
0: Yeah, I feel like this is 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 kind of a, a large rub within this whole challenge of of being a conscious leader trying to do good and perform. And and even um, this notion of safe space. Uh, which is is really interesting because obviously, just like Jonathan Nathan um, argues, safety is a good thing. I mean, how can safety not be uh, a good thing? However, one if you go just a little bit too far with it, well, we're not in we're not causing any danger. And I'm going to give the example of of a race where you you have a race, and if you're just relaxed and it's totally safe, it uh, doesn't matter if I win or lose, well, that doesn't seem like high performance situation, and there is such a thing as good stress. And there's an as a CEO who wrote a piece in Forbes, how psychological safety actually works, where he describes having tried to make a safe space at work for everybody to feel diverse opinions are good and all that, but he noted a, a decline in growth and creativity and problem solving. So there's this friction between challenge difficulty stress that sometimes is Mm. good and safety loving openness and vulnerability and it's a grisly mix that i see is is very challenging for leaders today
1: yeah i don't think the two have to be like you know mutually exclusive really because i You know, I mean, Google's Aristotle research, you probably know, the psychological safety research said the key to high performing teams is psychological safety, which includes two things, emotional awareness and equality in conversational turn taking. So taking equal time to speak to each other. That is what makes high performing teams. Now, those I imagine and from what I've seen from the great leaders, I know there is also very high expectation there. So just because you're, and you know this, I and mean, so don't you to but you know, just because we're kind, we're supportive, we listen, doesn't mean we're saying I need you to show up like now and I need that deadline met. And, and just because I'm vulnerable myself doesn't mean I'm gone mushy and I don't have high expectations for you. So I, but I think that is an interesting line to tread. Like how do you show that you have a strong backbone but also a warm heart. There's a really interesting book. I not remember it's by actually that is called something like that about this mix of of strong backbone and warm heart. And that that is possible, I think, with practice particularly, that we can be demanding, highly demanding of people and kind and a good listener, and there for them when there's something going on personally as well as work. And and no maybe winter flux between the modes depending on where they're at and how far we can kind of push them at that time.
0: Yeah, so this um, leads me to the the thought of balance, which you talk about at times in the book, work-life balance. And, uh, you know, obviously the the newer generations seem to be more plugged into this idea. And yet sometimes for some jobs, they're, you're going to have to work 96 hours this week to get it all done there's a big emergency we've got a big shareholder meeting or whatever and and that's the requirement and and uh, balance be be uh, thrown out or at least the life side of things so it it feels like the idea of balance is a very is is a it's a difficult state to achieve
1: yeah and i i think that is what companies have to work at because otherwise people will leave you know we we know that particularly the younger generation but we see across the generations now is that people are more demanding of their employer and because we have skill shortages especially in technology and some of these shortage skills but also in a lot of areas that if you're not offering enough balance and yes maybe people will accept long working hours on an ad hoc basis occasional times but even my partner who works in Consulting, for a big consulting firm, I'm noticing they're changing in terms of hours expectations, how the senior leaders are talking about um, what they expect in terms of um, commitment and work-life balance and all this type of thing. So it I just think that they have to find that balance. Now, every company culture is different and some cultures will cope with longer working hours, for example, because people like that or it works for them
0: you get the but big big paycheck at the end of the week.
1: Yeah, and they will get a big yeah, exactly. But I guess it's down to the business to see what their brand is, what is their employer brand? What do they stand for? Is it the 9 to 5? Is it is it kind of, you know, work hard play hard? Like what what is it and what are they getting? Is it enough back for what they're putting in?
0: yeah the, the the notion of purpose that uh obviously is a lot the how you sign off the book is how I read it anyway this notion of finding a purpose and the way I relate to that Ruth is that somehow the challenge is not just making alive a live a, a statement written in an annual report or printed in your lobby entrance about this is our purpose, making it come alive. It's actually making it resonate into the population. So if you have an existing organization and it doesn't have a purpose, you want to create one, or your company had a purpose a hundred years ago, you know, like the insurance companies, they had really interesting, fantastically important purpose, but you don't see that today. So making it come back alive. I, I've long felt that, the challenge, especially at the top, is actually there's no real personal involvement in that purpose. It's a, mm. it's a nice thing to do. we got to save the climate because, gosh, that's terrible. And of course it is. But there's also starvation. There's also inequalities. There. I mean, you could go with a lot. And, and what's your story into that? And the lack of a personal attachment, especially at the top, feels like cotton wool, or bs for everybody Mm. anyway even if we're we're giving one percent of our profits to climate change or whatever
1: yeah how do you react yeah i think i think what you what it sounds like you're talking about is like weaving purpose into the day-to-day lives of those that work there and helping them own it and i think there are various ways of of making that happen because what you don't want is to be having quite a terrible business that occasionally does nice stuff, like you said, does some offsetting or like because that's really terrible CSR. You know, first make it nice at home before you go and try good elsewhere. And um, and I think the way that businesses can reconnect with their purpose or even establish one that is more one that resonates more is by involving their employees in creating it. Now it's much quicker to sit around a boardroom and go right, let's come up with a one-liner for our purpose or our values or whatever, but. It might be empty. Like you said, it might be like, what's this, you know, BS that I'm reading? Doesn't doesn't sound right to me. Whereas if you're actually involved in a process, and I know various CEOs that have done this of even with big companies of distilling what the top values, behaviors are really not what we want them to be, but what are they? What do we stand for here? And what do we that can still have some aspirational element to it? And helping them actually create those words so that they like, oh, I can put my name to this. And I helped. There's been a really great democratic process here. Now, that's not the fastest way of doing it. But I tell you, it will gain the most motivation from people if they felt they've been involved in in such a process.
0: Well, like you uh, mentioned at the beginning, Ruth, about the, you know, sometimes maybe you should just leave the company if you're a middle manager and the top isn't on on board. Having a North Star, having a, an individual personal North Star and making that relate into the corporate North Star so that the corporate work you're doing or whatever you're doing in business has a, a flow over into your personal North Star could also be the opening of a flood of departures when people, if they actually do the work on figuring out who they are, their self-awareness and the North Star, say, well, what the hell am I doing here? This has nothing to do with my own personal North Star.
1: It could, or it, I've seen the opposite, though. If you involve people, if you genuinely involve people and you listen to their personal purpose alongside their work purpose and you allow them to see the overlap, which most people will see. If if there are good intentions behind creating a great company purpose and presumably you have good intentions as an employee, then there's usually quite a lot of overlap. Now, of course, there could be some discordance on a. You might be on a strategy day, like this is not me. I need to get out of here. But I find if the environment is cultivated in a way that people feel heard, then they see how it relates. It's only when the senior leaders, like you said, go off and do it separately that people feel like I don't even know where I fit in here.
0: You know what? Well, I I have a flashback just as you're speaking. Where we we brought in the advertising agency to work on our purpose.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So like external shiny brand first. Yeah. And some some advertising agencies, do them credit, or will go, right, we need to start home. But others will be like, yeah, what's the shiniest version we can stick out? Which
0: is. Yeah. Like well, it. I mean, the challenge, just like uh, it, it, a lot of these other companies is as a as a prospective employee, is actually how do you know what the culture is? Because yeah. pretty much everyone's going to say, "Oh, it's great," you know. Especially the people who are recruiting you, that's their job. They're not going to lie. I mean, they're they're not sorry. They're not going to say the truth if it's shit mm. behind the scenes. Mm. And so, for an employee, especially young people starting out, it's very difficult to sort of gauge without having had any experience what is the real culture behind the deck.
1: Right, and often HR or some senior leaders even think it's wonderful. They're like, oh, it's such a great place around here. It's like, yeah, maybe for you because you're in all the you're in all the big conversations about where the company is going. You're at the top table, and you make the rules. So for you, maybe it's nice. But if you're not involving people, you don't have like a more participatory culture, then that may not be the pe- the experience of those further down. And they may not tell you either. They might quietly be just dis- quite discontented and less productive than they could be.
0: Yeah, shut up. Not allowed to speak up. Uh, to right. one of your points in the book. Um you mentioned uh, the idea of everyone having the ability to converse or have their voice heard. I don't know if you recall but I'm writing a book about conversation and I'm really interested in the notion of conversation. Something that struck me in reading your book was the importance of time. So we got the stress of too much work and not enough time to to train to Listen to everybody moan about their personal lives or whatever it is that might need time. Similarly, for conversation, because as the boss, to obviously, you know, the well paid, most highest paid person says anything and everyone caves in and agrees. Or just because that's the quickest thing, I can decide immediately rather than go through this process of listening to everybody and then, well, it's going to be my idea anyway. But this notion of time. And I was wondering, how do you look at crafting the time to do your mindfulness or or at least not just you, Ruth, personally, but when you're talking coaching individuals in in enterprise or in business, how do you how do you look at crafting the time to do what's necessary?
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, this is a very personal question. For me, I do it because I know there is no other choice if I don't exercise, meditate, et cetera, et cetera, my mental health could start going downhill and I can't support anyone then. So, you know, full stop. That's just, it's a non-negotiable. I mean, my first podcast guest, John Hessler, he is a multimillionaire. He runs four construction companies and he manages to meditate. He also has two kids. He manages to meditate twice a day. And he's quite an active dad too. So it, I don't think this is about time, although that's what leaders report. It's about priority. And I think the challenge for leaders is that is mainly around delegation and delegation of responsibility and decision-making and getting to the place where you can confidently give away responsibility and decision-making so that you actually are doing less doing. What you're doing is facilitating. You are listening to people, hearing them moan about this and that, helping them flip their framing on something, helping them figure out how to move forward. You're challenging them on that bad behavior you saw last week, nipping that in the bud. You're checking in with them the week after to see how they feel after that feedback. And you're honing your vision and purpose and sharing that with them and hearing what they've got to say to add and all this type of thing. So your role becomes very different. It's less about the doing and more about the facilitating the thinking decision decision making and actions of the others around you which takes time right to get to that point and that's where i think the the leader needs to become much more of a coach themselves and most people don't really understand what coach means most people think it means mentor you know coach coaching really is about great listening it's about being grounded it's about facilitating others thinking that might be very different than yours and it's about being very present so i think it points to a different kind of time usage of leaders
0: also a very different mindset yeah. when you in your podcast which i want to talk to you about next but um you talk about uh, your interview with pip uh, Jamieson, and and it is something I, I really enjoyed and i want to contextualize it you, she talked about having a zero work agenda in meeting people, so no, no transaction. Just hey, listen, what's up, and and talking. And I I interviewed a a rugby player, a professional rugby player called Lee Mears, who played for England, for Bath, and was a British Lion as well. And and what was remarkable is the different types of leaders when you're in a city club, a national level, and at the Lions level, which is the the best, if you will, of of all the different nations. Of great britain and um what's the leader look like when you're at that level because pretty much everybody who's got a spot on that team is probably pretty good at that spot and you are pretty good at your spot but what is it that makes you a better leader and and he described how on the lions tour the captain took the time to talk with everybody had an open door policy where anytime, night or day could come in and talk to me about anything and it just it just seems like a such a non-productivity version of leadership and and having these zero work moments where you're just spending time connecting with people is so powerful do you have any other examples of people doing that or anyway maybe elaborate on your reaction to that yeah
1: i mean i think this feels to me about trust So if you're there for people, about their work stuff, about, you know, anything else that's going on in their lives, and I think that creates a bond, and it doesn't mean you have to share a lot, because I think a lot of leaders worry, like, oh my God, everyone's going to start crying in the office, and we're going to have, like, once Pandora's box is open, we're never going to put it back. You know, I don't think it has to be, like, you have to drop into their entire therapist mode, but... It does mean. I mean, yeah. I and mean, there's loads of examples in the book, but like June Cory, for example, she was. I think she was my second podcast guest. She talked about how, at one point, there were three of them in the office, and they realised like one of them was going through chemotherapy, the other one was had a mortgage they couldn't afford, and the other had this really disenfranchised child, and they all just opened up in this moment. and And she's the founder of this company. And in that moment, when they all shared this stuff and they stood in a circle, they just looked at each other and realized how connected they were to each other in their kind of struggle. They were both all having, all three of them having really shit time. And they didn't need to solve each other's problems, but they all stood there in like a triumvirate type thing, the three of them. And it was a powerful moment of connection. You use the word connection. It was a moment of shit. This is what it's like being human. And. And she attributes that sort of thing as powerful in the way she leads.
0: I so subscribe to that. I, um, I've i done a film on the Second World War and, and also talked about how the band of brothers gets together. And in a same way as vulnerability about a personal issue is connecting those three people you were talking about, being together with a band of guys typically and going through death threatening situations is also a way to quickly bond you together and and for me it's maybe a different way to do it but it's it, it's very personal has to be personal because you're you know your 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 journey to death is a personal journey it's you alone with it and and being able to expose others to your fears and worries about that, and maybe your left one, loved ones left behind, and so on. Something I had many interviews with, with these veterans talking about. And you, no. you you talk about your friend Annette Johnson, and she says, "I feel trust is at the core of the best relationships at home or work." And and so it feels, and this is my strong opinion as well. We need to be able to bring personal shit the messiness of life into work and yet stay performing and, and you know, doing everything else.
1: Mm. And the two can happen at once. Like the three of them, I know June, who I talked about just now, she's a very demanding, like high-paced leader. And she would have had that moment. And then probably like 10 minutes later, she would have been like, right guys, let's go, you know? And, and she can toggle like that. And I think that is challenging. And you have to know when to toggle and when it is, That you move between different states but I think I think it's possible to do both but I don't think it's easy necessarily for the traditional masculine leaders that we talked about earlier and I think that is where the big work needs to happen and can happen slowly you don't have to pour out all of your past worst problems you've ever had to your staff but you could share something
0: well maybe your book (laughs) that would be great um send them uh your book so um last question really just about your podcast that you began 2019 um you've had some wonderful guests on it really I like the flow of it I was wondering how you first of all just would react about starting your podcast and how the process has been how did you select your guests uh, and maybe select the length and all these other elements to go into the nitty gritties of podcasting. Has it been good for you?
1: Yeah, I normally get recommendations for the podcast guests, or I hear about them. Sometimes I see something on LinkedIn where I can see they're really stepping up for their people in more radical ways. And I think, brilliant, I need to hack into this. And um, I started off doing them recording like maybe 50 minutes an hour. Now we record about 45 minutes, edit down to about 30, 35. And and I but in that space, I think we get quite deep quite quickly because I really want them to open up. I don't want them to give us the shiny version. I want them to give us tell us what's great, but also tell us what's been really tough. What's gone wrong? What's been your worst moment, your darkest hole you've been in in your leadership journey? Explain that to us and explain how you got yourself out, because I think that really helps people connect. Like we talked about that sharing that vulnerability. Connect with others and see how they could apply it to to their lives, because otherwise we see these CEOs as these like lofty people who are so amazing, but really they're just average human beings. And if we can connect to that, it helps us see how capable we can be too.
0: So, in in the desire to get to that deep point, which is also essentially what you're asking for people to do within business, what are some of the tips or lessons learned about getting someone to open up and feel that they can uh, expose themselves in a public environment
1: i think this has to start with self development like mood management anything to help with someone's well-being it's very difficult for someone to share if they're afraid of the problem themselves so if they if even if you notice someone's stressed and you think that they could be encouraged in any way to support their well-being that's probably a better thing you could do for them than asking them to share. But if you think they're further on that journey, then I think people who have self-managed quite well can listen better. So great listening involves things like groundedness. It involves uh, curiosity, involves a strong intention and belief in the other person and, and empathy, which is your specialist subject. So I think that's one way is to connect with other people is just to listen to them because you don't have to dive into spilling your heart out. You can just be more present for them and you will start to connect naturally to how they're feeling. And beyond that, once you've got to a place where you listened well, the relationship's quite strong, you can give them feedback. feedback. So if you're noticing their behavior is poor, then call them out on it privately quickly so that they're able to rectify that. Because in that you will build more trust, and they might share something about their personal life that's going on, that's meaning that they're behaving poorly at work. Who knows? Who knows what they're going to say? But it might be in a moment for you to be honest about one time when you did something badly at work. I, I don't know. It has to be the person to decide. But giving difficult feedback is actually a great way of of connecting with people.
0: Yeah, especially if they know it's with the right intention. Exactly. Yeah. I, as you opened up our chat, you started with the fact that you're not perfect in, in everything you do. And, and I feel like that is one of the keys as a, as a leader to set the example, of course, with some genuineness and authenticity to expose weakness, not like, well, I'm, you know, I'm really stubborn about getting good performance. All right. Okay.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: that's my weakness. That's not, gets people into you I I've recounted a few times how the first time I cried in public was you know I felt totally embarrassed uh, and at the end of the session it was a PR launch the most important person in the room came up to me and uh, by the hug and and the the look and the comments said that she felt she didn't feel any less of me she felt more connected into me as a result mm-hmm. And so as opposed to feeling embarrassed, which I did, by the way, I still probably some level do, because um, it's just not how I was brought up, like you mentioned, um, it, it really broke free this idea that, you know, you can also be considered strong, powerful, useful, effective, and wig out like by dance I did on on, on LinkedIn recently, and just, you know, show your whole wobbly weirdo whatever side
1: yeah I mean we've all become too serious haven't we like let's face it we've all become too professional you know and I think that has got a bit tired now I think people were uh, more willing to open up but I think there we are doing it with some people and then leaving others behind and there's the other side where people were like over gushy which I'm not into either like it's sort of like you know every problem I've ever had but you know there is a balance for us to strike there and i'm wondering i think this feels like a theme about our chat today is how we bring people with us
0: yeah and the balance ruth lovely so how can anyone follow you connect with you track you down and most importantly order your book next level well, leadership
1: yeah you can get all of that at consciousleaders.org.uk and you'll better see free episodes of the podcast on there as well as yeah information about the book and blogs so help yourself to to content and yeah i'd love to hear what anyone thinks of the book and really what makes it practical for them i think
0: that's really important i will put all of those in the show notes merci beaucoup ruth thank you thanks for having listened to this episode of the minter dialogue podcast if you like the show would like to support me please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash MinterDial you can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service and as ever rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts you'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on MinterDial.com check out my documentary film and four books including my last one You Lead How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader and to finish here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer A Convinced Man
2: I like the feel of a stranger Tucked around me precipitating the danger To feel free Trust is the reason Still I won't Hope for your respect, anticipating the thrill of your intellect. Maybe I tell myself there's no use in me lying. I'm a convinced man, building an urge. I'm a convinced man to live and die submerged. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man, challenge my fate. I'm a convinced man. Competitions in me. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. despise revenges and struggle with deceit, live for the challenge so life's not incomplete. Convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man to the test. I'm a convinced man. I'm ready for an arrest. I'm a convinced man in the arms of a woman.